Hello, Paradox Free Speech and Medicine podcast listeners. This is another in our speakers series for the 2023 Free Speech and Medicine Conference. This year's conference, our second annual, will be held in Bedeck, Nova Scotia, October 27th to 29th. All of the information is at freespeechandmedicine.com. We hope that you consider signing up. We have a great speaker lineup this year. Our headliner is Dr. Gad Saad, who needs no introduction to most of you. Um, We also have Dr. Ken Zucker, one of the world leading experts in transgenderism. We have Julian Summers, who is a very important voice in the field of harm reduction drug policy. We have Rupa Subramanya, who so ably covered the trucker rally of 2021, and a bunch of other great speakers who I don't have time to mention. Tonight, I'll be speaking with Dr. Eris Lavranos. Eris has a unique skill set. He's both a doctor who's worked for a number of years in emergency medicine and a newly minted lawyer who's just started a legal practice specializing in medical cases. Eris is an important member of the Nova Scotia Civil Liberties Association. He's politically involved and he was an outspoken voice over COVID policy overreach. Eris was a panelist at our 2022 Free Speech and Medicine Conference and is back by popular demand, this time as a speaker with his own time slot. As with our other speaker interview podcasts, this will give you a little sense of who Eris is and what he plans to speak about at the conference this year. We sincerely hope you can come and listen to him and meet him in person. Eris, thanks very much for joining me. It's such a pleasure to be here talking to you, Chris. Lovely. Well, thanks. Um, so firstly, maybe you can tell us uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, what uh, What's your career path and what are you up to these days? Sure. So um, I've been uh, graduating from med school for about 10 years now, just over 10 years. I've been working in an emergency department pretty regularly ever since. Um, I have a real passion for emergency medicine. I love my job, love my career, um, helping patients, um, the acuity, the intensity, um, and a sort of a side interest was something sort of political in nature. I was quite vested with the Conservative Party, both federally and provincially. Um, and I thought I would go back to law school, sort of like brush up on some health policy, maybe do college level work or some kind of hospital administration or pursue that political ambition. Um, but as a consequence of COVID, COVID policies and the sort of net harms that I was really seeing in society through the emergency department, I sort of changed direction and pursued a career in medical malpractice. And currently I am uh, articling at a personal injury and medical malpractice law firm in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Right on. And you just graduated fairly recently. Yeah, law school about four months ago. Right. So you're you're a newly newly minted lawyer, and I, I think I was making the joke last time uh, when we first tried to record this interview that you're as a doctor and a lawyer, you're somebody who can scare himself when he looks in the mirror. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like you know, on the one hand, it gives you a sense of reassurance because you kind of know where the pitfalls are, and if you're avoiding them already, it kind of makes you feel a little bit stronger about the practice. But on the flip side, you're like, well, you know what? This is the process of litigation. These are where the harms are, and you got to you know tighten up. Um, charting and um, consulting and wherever wherever it might need. Right. And uh, I should mention too, you're also relatively recently married and uh, and a new papa. 
Yes. Yeah. Married for two years and I have a little 16 month old at home and she's an angel. She's the greatest thing in my life. Lovely. Well, congratulations on that. And congratulations on your, your graduating from law school. Many of us are, uh, struggling just to uh, keep our heads above water medicine. You managed to put yourself through law school while still working. So good, good on you. Yeah. I have a, a incredibly supportive spouse. Hannah is just, uh, has the patience of a saint and she was very supportive the whole time and um, really pushes for me and encourages me and finds that, you know, the sense of justice that we're pursuing legally now um, is something that's really important in society. And so I feel, I feel blessed in every way. Lovely. Be behind every great band, right? Yeah, exactly right. In my case, it's hundred percent true. Right on. Um, so uh, maybe tell us a bit first about your, uh, your experience and involvement in free speech and medicine 2020 conference. Sure. So I had um, an incredible opportunity uh, to attend last year and to participate in a panel discussion with um, someone who has become one of my heroes, um, Professor Bruce Party. And we had an uh, amazing conversation. I was inspired with some of the other speakers. Matt Strauss uh, has become a, a friend of mine. Um, and I strongly, strongly support him in Ontario. And um, of course, I got to meet an absolute icon, um, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Um, he and I had a wonderful conversation and I learned so much about the advocacy role for free speech in medicine. And I feel very privileged to uh, be speaking at the 2023 conference. Lovely. Well, we, we appreciate you agreeing to. Um, maybe if you can, you know, I don't want you to steal your own thunder and do your own whole talk here or give it all away, but maybe you can give us a little sense of what you've had your head in, what you've been looking into, and what you're going to tell us about at the conference. Yeah, sure. So in law school, I spent quite a bit of time um, looking into what we call the administrative state and administrative law. And the administrative state is the section of government in Canada um, that's basically um, the delegated responsibility for certain portfolios. So for example, the Environmental Protection Agency or Human Rights or um, in our case, colleges, so professional regulating bodies. So whether that is you know, the Barrister Society or the College of Pharmacists or the College of Nurses or the College of Physicians. And so the administrative state is responsible for the regulation of their own little spheres that um, in Canada, um, unfortunately, occupies a tremendous spectrum and authority um, in Canadian life. So it's probably sort of underappreciated. You think to yourself that, well, we have elected officials and we have voting and elections and that those things uh, play a significant role. But the reality is that a lot of the responsibility of decision-making that affects um, the average Canadian day-to-day -day is delegated to the administrative state, who are the um, bureaucrats, regulators, they go by so many different names, right? Um, and so as a consequence of my study, uh, both formal in law school and then extracurricular, some of the books that I've read, whether it's Thomas Sowell or Milton Friedman, started to really appreciate that this is a much, much more insidious presence than uh, might at first uh, sort of believe. So the role that elites play, the protection of authority and power, the promotion of fragility in society, and ultimately that it is a net harm if uh, sort of unchecked and unfortunately, we've been seeing a sort of snowball effect where politicians are more than happy to delegate their responsibility to, quote unquote, experts who know best. 
and certainly we saw that highlighted through public health officials dictating policy throughout COVID. And so the talk that I plan to present is going to be focused on the harms that are associated with the growing administrative state in Canada. Gotcha. So just to just so that I understand it and it said clearly, so th- this administrative state, uh, the sort of the more conspiracy-minded way of describing it would be the deep state. Is that true? Like it's sort of an unchanging bureaucracy that does not change even when we vote a new government in and an old government out. Is that a way? Yeah, of that it? is correct. So they don't they, they don't necessarily change. I mean, like they are by appointment, and you kind of leave well enough alone. Um, and you can imagine the optics of what it looks like if you every time there is a new election and a different party comes into power, that they replace all of the administrative state with um, sort of partisan leaning um, officials. So people tend to stay away from that. Um, so you're, you're right in that it is quote unquote deep state in that it is sort of a perpetual uh, bureaucracy that lives on. Um, however, it isn't hidden. It isn't shadow. So it is quite obvious if you know where to look. So it's not the same as um, perhaps in cabinet you have like delegated authority to um, executives and they help draft policy. It's not a, it's not that sort of deep state. It's people who are literally responsible for the policing and regulation of different professions. And that's, that's really the, it's in your face. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately it still carries a lot of the insidiousness and what a conspiracy theory theorist might think of as a nefariousness um, because how they make their decisions, the increasing scope of power, the fact that they are they don't have an accountability mechanism, all of those things are certainly present and um, uh, risky to say the least. Mm. And I'm, I may be getting deep into the weeds of your talk when I ask this, but what is the accountability mechanism? Because I assume, you know, we're, we're in a democracy, so there must be some, if the, say the head of a medical college did something really egregious I assume they could be removed, but how is the head of a, let's say, how's the head of the nursing college selected? Who selects her? Who can get rid of her? What are the criteria for, for getting rid of somebody like that? Do we ever see it happen? Do you know much about that? Um, so generally speaking, um, I mean, like I can, I certainly can't think in my experience of uh, situations in Nova Scotia where that has happened, where it has, ha- where it has happened as a function of accountability. Uh, it certainly happens. Um, I don't want to say routinely or regularly, but it happens with people moving on to different positions or growing out of it, or, you know, as a consequence of, let's say, a, a senescence in the position, you kind of move on and get new blood, that sort of thing. Um, as you know, we vote for the representatives to the college. The college then appoints a board from those representatives, and the board is the ones who are responsible for the appointment and persistence of the registrar. However, um, it is the college only grows in one direction that's bigger. And that's, that's part of the problem. Um, the other problem is, as we've seen, for example, on the federal stage, the Bank of Canada could be considered part of the administrative state, right? Mm-hmm. Like they are responsible for their federal policy. Now, on the one hand, you're like, okay, great. Let's let the experts handle it. Also, let's remove this from the quote unquote partisanship. But I think that we can all agree that they certainly kowtowed to the liberal spending platform throughout COVID and even before then. And so when Justin Trudeau is out there saying, well, I don't think much about monetary policy, and it's a ridiculous assertion to make for the Prime Minister of Canada, in a sense, he is offloading the burden of responsibility to the Bank of Canada. 
And so, of course, they can appoint and reject um, certain authorities within the administrative state, and they should have responsibility to do that. But it can sort of look unseemly to be doing that kind of replacing. And so it's particularly bold when you see, I mean, like Pierre Polliver has gotten a lot of flack for doing just that, right, for criticizing um, the um, regulation authority for uh, public broadcasters. I think it's called CRTC. Mm-hmm. Right, saying that he's going to overhaul them, he's going to reduce uh, um, their scope, he's going to um, quote unquote defund the CBC. You know, like that is a controversial thing to say the least because it is kind of interfering with the administrative state. He said the same thing about the bank, the governor of the Bank of Canada, that he would fire him immediately. And that's fair because he's completely incompetent. But again, it's like, ooh, kind of taboo you know, all the conservatives coming in and messing around with all the experts and how would he know and so on. So it's not an easy or straightforward thing to do. There's a lot of political ramifications to the perceptions of it. I mean, like, do you remember when Tim Houston was elected in Nova Scotia, he fired the board of governors for the health authority. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden people were like, Ooh, you know, like, Oh, he appointed them with someone who doesn't have a lot of healthcare experience. And Oh, you know, like it's a weighing of the expertise and so on. So it's not an easy process. It's not a, a, a politically neutral or a, a politically simple process to do that. There are a lot of ramifications to that in the perception of the public. And that's part of the problem mm-hmm. is that um, along with the sort of nanny state perspective that we have in Canada, there's a tremendous deference to quote unquote authority in these positions, but their track record is abysmal. The error rates are fantastic and the accountability is negligible. And so that's part of the mismatch that I'm going to be talking about is that the amount of authority that they have um, and the lack of uh, appreciated mechanism to address that is a very serious risk because you are consolidating so much decision-making in the power of so few that the you are embellishing the sense of risk and you're creating what are called, it's called a very fragile system. So poor decision-making by the college, for example, and the regulation of free speech, like we saw with Jordan Peterson just a couple of weeks ago. So when you start to infringe on what physicians or psychologists or nurses can say, you are really amplifying the risk by uh, giving the perception that physicians all feel the same about something. So you see it with climate policy, 97, 98% of experts all agree. It's like, well, yeah, but you know, if the two to 3% are basically being censored online and they don't have the capacity to speak up because of um, infringing their regulatory authorities, then you're creating the illusion of consensus where consensus doesn't exist. And that's a very fragile system because people just go along with the one idea instead of having a marketplace of ideas, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So it's interesting, Eris, I've been thinking about this subject for the last few days for various reasons, the things I've had my head into and reading. But the idea with uh, our democracy, and the U.S. is more explicitly like this, but we basically have the legislative authority, the judiciary, and the administrative state. And they're all in ways supposed to balance each other and countervail against each other's perhaps attempts at taking too much authority upon himself. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that during COVID, what happened was uh, we kind of just gave the keys to the medical officers of health in each province that said, you do whatever you want. And I, I know that there's this thing, and this may not be a familiar term to listeners. You can maybe explain it better than I can, but this idea of judicial notice. Mm -hmm. So the many Canadians felt that, 
the court system was there to secure our rights and protect us against the at least the perceived, uh, you know, I believe it, I believe it myself, but the, the perceived overreach of medical officers of health in, in the way that they infringed our rights. We thought that the courts would help us, but instead judges, you know, quote unquote, took judicial notice, i.e. they took what medical officers of health said to be true on their face and court decisions that they made were based out of that judicial notice. I'm not, I'm not maybe not explaining that well. Do you think that I'm- No, no I, th I think that you are. No, I, th I, think, that, I think that's fair. So um, there are a series of, let's say, um, judicial theories or perspectives that kind of in inform how they, uh, how they um, value the expert opinion. Judicial notice would be one of them. So uh, yes, you're absolutely right. When- you know, the top five newspapers in Canada that are all literally being paid by the government um, all echo the sentiments repeatedly by the quote unquote health authorities, which is part of the administrative state. Um, it gives them a credibility that judges cannot ignore. And so when the judges take judicial notice, and there is a process by which you can sort of challenge or determine what you can and cannot take judicial notice on. But um, it's a tremendous force that judges are kind of, I don't want to say beholden to, but they can accept with minimal challenge. So that's one mechanism. But the other mechanism is in the um, appeal of any decision that a uh, regulatory body makes. Um, they don't necessarily have to be correct in their decision making. And that's one of the huge problems. So as we saw, for example, with Jordan Peterson, the College of Psychologists Tribunal makes their decision, says you have to go for re-education. And Jordan Peterson appeals that to the court. Now, the court does not have to say that their decision was correct, right? So if you go to an appeals court and you are appealing a provincial court, right? If you're appealing a lower court decision to a higher court decision, as an example, correctness of law, correctness of fact is certainly part of what they are going to examine. However, when you are appealing the decision of the administrative state, the judiciary does not necessarily look, in fact, they more often than not do not look at the correctness of the decision. They look to see the reasonableness of the decision. And it's very, very difficult to suggest that the outcome is outside of the reasonable limits. So it's either egregious on the extreme end or it's so minimal on the other end. Um, so in the instance of Jordan Peterson, which is like a pretty famous case at this point, they don't have to suggest that, well, that's an infringement or that's wrong. Although, of course, Jordan Peterson's team argued that this was a violation of rights. But all that you'd have to say is, well, apart from that, it is a reasonable decision. You know, if you have been um, irking people online and you are in a position of authority as a psychologist should be, and there's a regulation standard and the regulatory body said that you fell outside of that standard, it is reasonable for them to suggest that you do online media coaching. So now I think it's patently unreasonable, but that doesn't matter. The mechanism that's in place to determine that um, to me is faulty. And this is part of the problem of the administrative state is these are the, these are the processes that empower them. Are they beneficent? Are they truth seeking? Are they objective? Um, is their sense of what is, um, normalized or ideal is that true um, would be one category of possible errors. And then the other one would be, 
is this within their scope of practice to even determine? So how can the College of Psychologists wade into a discussion in which none of this has anything to do with a psychological client relationship, right? I mean, like this has nothing to do with Jordan Peterson's um, treatment uh, of a client. He has never been accused of treating somebody disrespectfully or unprofessionally. It's just his communications are not within the professional standard. And that's part of the huge problem is that the scope of these bodies tends to grow. It doesn't shrink. Mm-hmm. And in large part, that has to do with the fact that we as a, as a citizenry do not push back against their authority. So when you have such broad terminology as quote unquote behavior unbecoming mm-hmm. of the profession, what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. Should we not have certain sort of um, restrictions on that? Should we not evaluate that? Should it not be limited to a very specific um, type of encounter? If I uh, come out of a bar during a uh, medical conference and somebody sees that I have an ID tag on and I'm uh, drinking too much and they launch a complaint, I mean, like, uh, this has nothing to do with clinical practice at all. What is this? This is the illusion that physicians are not supposed to drink in public. This is the illusion that physicians are not supposed to be X, Y, or Z. That kind of homogenization of behaviors, of perspectives is really, really dangerous to society. Very, very dangerous. I don't want to live in a world where everybody is forced to um, speak in one way, to endorse a certain opinion or perspective. I have no problem with the idea of physicians or psychologists or nurses or um, engineers being cracks. I don't care. In fact, I embrace it. That's Mm -hmm. good. Variety is the spice of life. And more importantly than that, it takes all these different characters in the mosaic of personality to affect real political change. I want there to be um, physicians who ruffle feathers, who call out other, um, whether it's politicians or other physicians, that's a sign of a healthy marketplace of ideas. The idea that it's like, well, you know, you overstepped or like, you know, this goes to, I'm, I'm thinking about you in particular here, Chris, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. one would think that where you are as a chief of the emergency department, criticizing healthcare policy is well within your scope mm-hmm. and having some kind of potential complaint or negative outcome as a consequence of you vocalizing your opinion. I mean, to me, is this a, a terrible prognostic indicator of society? And that is the direction, that is the sole direction that Canada has been traveling. And that's the, that's the problem. So it's not, to me, it's not sufficient really to just kind of reform this. I think then I plan to make a case that these bodies are unnecessary in society. We existed well before them. And certainly with other market force mechanisms that are available to us today, we can exist very happily without them. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah. So it was, it's interesting, Aris, as you went through some of that, it, it made me recall that during my first um I'll say, I'll say inquisition with the college over the op-ed I wrote, uh, which people can read about at jccf.ca. I'll put it in the show notes for this. Um, I was, it was suggested to me that uh, I was asked the question, do you really think it's appropriate for you as a physician to be commenting on medically related issues, which I thought was very odd because uh, my answer to that at the time was, well, I, I don't think it would make much sense for me to, Uh, to give very, uh, what would you say, very strong opinions on whether we should pave the highways with asphalt versus concrete, because that's not my area of expertise. I don't know much about it. I know there's pros and cons to each, but I don't know which is best. So I, I, I would think that we would want people in a certain profession commenting on that profession, ideally, but with the, what I call professionalism creep, the way that colleges have defined professionalism and tightened up the walls of free speech and tightened up the Overton window. It's become more and more situation where 
if you're a doctor, you're not supposed to comment on medicine. If you're a, you know, whatever, a teacher, you're not supposed to comment on teaching, which is just the opposite of what we want to promote in society, I would think. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, I 100% agree. And the reality is that even if these are not formal limitations, um, they are sort of the consequence of this being within the purview of the college, that there's a, a, a silencing, even if it's not overt. So, you know, like, even if they don't broadcast a decision and say, you know, like, we have reprimanded um, Dr. Chris Milburn because of his um, uh, opinions that and how he expressed them, and we um, also fined him, you know, let's say $5,000. I'm like, that would have the obvious effect of chilling. But you don't need to go that to that degree in order to chill the willingness of people to speak. So, I mean, I think that you and I both know many, many, many physicians who strongly disagreed with a lot of COVID policy. Mm-hmm. but did not have the courage as a consequence of this chilling effect from the college to speak up. And Mm -hmm. that is a, to me, a tremendous risk to society, because like you said, these are the people who are best placed, their opinions matter. And even if they are wrong, it doesn't matter if they are wrong, even if they are wrong, it is the vocalization of their opinions that steers how authority is going to communicate, what issues they're going to address, how they're going to convince those physicians, you know, it affects the communication strategies, uh, and so on and so on. So, I mean, like, there are so many ancillary benefits to allowing free speech. I mean, like, that's why, you know, like, the U.S. Uh, Constitution has it as their First Amendment. Like, it's paramount. And so the the discussion itself doesn't need to necessarily change an outcome. It can affect processes. And that in itself is good enough. Mm-hmm. But there, that chilling effect is such a um, – it has a snowball effect Right, the homogenization of personality or the um, the illusion of consensus. I mean, these are very serious problems in these different industries, and where these uh, regulatory bodies have such tremendous power. I mean, like you know, you can get a caution, you can get a reprimand or a censor, you can get a fine, you can get a suspension, you can have a license revoked. I mean, like the 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 you can be you know injunction authority like re-education or you have to comply with you know this series of uh, tasks or um you need this degree of oversight etc i mean like those are not small burdens those are very large burdens and like you and i both know it has an impact on your ability to move to practice elsewhere to get a job somewhere else to seek promotion and so these are huge threats that uh kind of like the sort of damages that hangs over your head that's going to force you to have a very specific behavior and so I can only imagine if there was a there was no college, then our perspective, the conversation around COVID and COVID policies would have been dramatically different, dramatically different, 180 degrees difference. We would have had, I mean, like, I think you and I both know, we would have had probably, like, between the two of us, maybe 50 or 60 more physicians in Nova Scotia alone would have been speaking up pretty vehemently against uh, a lot of COVID policies. But instead, right, like, there are, like, maybe four or five of us who were really outspoken, Um yeah, so that's the that's the power of this chilling effect. Yeah, that, that I, you uh, bring to mind that saying, "Punish one, silence a thousand. Yeah, right? it's so true. That's exactly it. Well said. Yeah. Okay. Well, Eris, I think that's all I want to ask you. We could talk for a long time, but uh, again, I don't want to uh, I don't want to steal your thunder for your for your talk at free speech and medicine. So, um, it, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to say? Yeah, just that um, um, it's not all doom and gloom. There are options. There is a process by which we can sort of start to um, reform or replace a lot of these bodies. And um, if you want to end on a good note, then you should definitely come and hear the talk because I think that there's some hope at the end of it.
All right. So you're saving all the really good stuff. That was just a, a teaser. I love it. Okay. Well, Eris, listen, uh, thanks so much. I appreciate you spending the time on this. I know you're, uh, well, you and I are moving from this uh, recording tonight to another important issue, which, uh, so we'll be reconvening online fairly shortly, but I appreciate you taking the time and uh, really look forward to hearing you speak at Free Speech and Medicine. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you.